بسم الله الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم. Respected brothers, elders, mothers and sisters in Islam, السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. It's always a pleasure to be here in Darul Salam. May Allah Zawajal accept from all of us. Amin. And allow us to benefit from the ulama that have spoken and will be speaking, inshaAllah. The topic um, um, that I was assigned is caretakers of the earth, as you see on the um, screen before you. And Allah Azza wa Jal mentions in the Quran, بَعْدَ أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ هُوَ الَّذِي جَعَلَكُمْ خَلَائِفَ فِي الْأَرْضِ He is the one who has made you successors on the earth. Generation after generation of people coming. And the Mufassireen, the scholars of Tafsir state that Allah Azza wa Jal has given us the keys of tasarruf, control, by his authority, and also given us the keys of intifa' to benefit from the resources that Allah Azza wa Jal has placed at our disposal on this earth. Whether it is directly benefiting from the resources that Allah Azza wa Jal has placed here, or whether it is looking at these resources or looking at these things that Allah Azza wa Jal has put and taking heed from it, taking a lesson from it, because that is also a faida, that is also a benefit. And Allah Azza wa Jal has subjected what is in the earth's what is in the earth and what is in the skies to us. All of this is from Him. That Allah Azza wa Jal has given us these resources to use. And for man to use these resources as a caretaker, as a custodian, as a person that he's assigned this trust from Allah Azza wa Jal. And he should use this trust in the manner that Allah Azza wa Jal wants him to use it, not in the way that he wants to use it. It is a trust from Allah Azza wa Jal that is with us. Allah Azza wa Jal has no need for us to be custodians or caretakers on this earth. Allah Azza wa Jal can take care of everything by himself. Absolutely no need of us. And so this is a great privilege from Allah Azza wa Jal. But with a great privilege comes a great responsibility also. And that is why there's no better example than Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam of how Rasulullah sallallahu from amongst his sunnah, from among his blessed and beloved ways was that after eating food, he would lick his fingers to eat even the smallest morsels of food that were left on his Mubarak fingers. This is how much concern Rasulullah had for the ni'mah and the blessings that Allah Azza wa has granted him. Think about all the energy and resources that goes, whether it's a vegetarian dish or whether it's a meat dish that Allah Azza wa has given us. How much resources goes into that? The power of the sun, whether it's irrigated or whether the water from the sky comes, it's planted, it's, it grows, it is harvested, it is made, it is packaged, it's processed. And finally we eat it. How much energy goes into that? And Allah Azza wa has written this risk for us. So Rasulullah's example of taking and licking his fingers after that is the ultimate example of how a person shows his ubudiyah to Allah Azza wa that I am a slave of Allah Azza wa These resources from Allah Azza wa I should take care of them. Everything that has been put. Because all these things have been created for you and you have been created for ibadah. All of these things that Allah Azza wa Jal has placed at our disposal have been created for us, but we have been created for the worship of Allah Azza wa Jal. And by being proper caretakers, proper custodians of the resources, the ni'mah, the blessings that Allah Azza wa Jal has given us, that's how we, is one way, thank Allah Azza wa Jal. And so in this regard, um, the talk that is there, the caretakers of the earth, um, the first, we still don't have the laptop here. And so we want to move on, inshallah, I'll move on to the slides, as I recall. And so the, when we look at the examples of how we deal with the ecosystem, the earth around us, 
There are many, many examples. Obviously, all of us can practice on the sunnah of Rasulullah But in addition to that, in our own professional lives, in our own private lives, Jazakumullah khairan. We will come across um, situations, we will come across scenarios where we will be required to act according to our reason and intelligence using the blessings that Allah Azza wa has given us. How should we react to this ni'mah? How should we react to this blessing? And there are many, many examples on how we react to the ecosystem around us that shows that we understand the responsibility and the privilege that has been given to us by Allah Azza wa as caretakers of this earth. So let us look at two quick examples before we go on to the real talk. And the first example is the cautiousness of hadith narrators, which is how in tune they were with the environment around them. You had some hadith narrators who went to listen to a hadith, to get a hadith from a shaykh of hadith. And when they got over there, they saw that this person is trying to capture his mule who had gotten away from him. And to get his mule to come to him, this shaykh of hadith he had an empty feed bag, which is a bag that you put on the muzzle, on the nose of the animal to feed him. And this person was showing him this empty feed bag. That come, I have food for you. I have food for you. And these hadith narrators, these students of hadith have arrived to get this hadith from this person. And so when they see that this person is trying to get this mule to come towards him, and they see that this feed bag is empty. It doesn't have food in it. He's just trying to trick his mule to get him to come so that he can capture him. So they immediately they respond to this environment, this thing that is going around there with this environment, that this is also a creation of Allah Azza wa Jal, this mule. And he's being tricked by his owner. So how do they respond to it? And they are students of religious knowledge. They say that if he can lie to his mule, how can we be sure that he's not going to lie when he narrates a hadith to us? How can we be sure that he's not going to lie to us when he narrates a hadith of Rasulullah to us? That's why we're not going to take a hadith from him. That's why we're not going to accept a hadith from him. Look at the cautiousness. This is reacting to the environment around you. That this is also a creation of Allah Azza wa Jal. He also deserved that he shouldn't be tricked. When he showed a bag, it should have food in it. And so look at how they reacted to this environment. Another example from amongst the scholars of natural sciences is Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Zakariya al-Razi was from amongst the premier physicians of his time. During the Khilafah of Al-Mu'tadid, he was charged with building a hospital in Baghdad, the capital. How did he find the location for the hospital? How did he find the location for the hospital? And then the Khalifa has charged him, you have to build a hospital for the people over here. How do you find the ideal location? So he had pieces of meat hung in various parts of the city. He had pieces of meat hung in various parts of the city. And he went and checked on them on a daily basis to see in which area, in which quarter, in which neighborhood of Baghdad, the meat would spoil the latest. The, most, the more days would go by before the meat would spoil. Because that would give you an idea of the quality of the air. How clean that area is. And how good of a location that is for patients to come and retrieve over there. Because they understood how we treat our environment how we treat our environment, that also comes back right back to us. If we treat, if we pollute the environment, then we also stand to lose. We also suffer from that. So look at how they reacted with the environment around them. Whether they were ulama, scholars of hadith, scholars of Quran, or whether they were scholars of the natural science, in tune with the environment around them. 
And when you're in tune with the environment around you, you deal with it in a way that you become a caretaker, in a humble way that you look at everything around you, not with takabur, not with arrogance. And this have, when you have that kind of understanding, when you go around your personal life or professional life, you're able to incorporate this aspect that you are a caretaker of the earth. And so you treat everything with respect, with the way it should be treated. And so this is known as the fiqh of environmental ethics. Because what is fiqh is jurisprudence is these laws that have been structured, taken from the Qur'an, taken from the hadith by the ulama, and combined into laws, structured laws for us to follow. And so, the reason that it is good to understand what does Allah Azza wa require for us in each specific situation, and you'll find that the scholars have written about water use, they've written about animal rights, they've written about waste management, they've written about sustainable forestry, they've written about how to revival the, the wastelands, all this information is in fiqh, is in jurisprudence. And for us to understand how we should go in our, in our lives and to understand this, this is an indication that Allah Azza wa Jal desires good for us. Because in the hadith it comes, Man bi khayran, For whoever Allah Azza wa Jal desires good, He gives him understanding in the deen. And from amongst the understanding in deen is what is fiqh? Is fiqh is al-fiqhu ma'rifatun nafs ma laha wa ma alayha. Fiqh is an understanding of your rights and your duties. What hukuk you have, and what hukuk and rights you have to give to others. Whether it's an animal, whether it's the earth, whether it's the bounties of Allah Azza wa Jal. These are your, what rights you have as a Muslim, as a believer, as a person, as a human being, and what duties you have as a caretaker of the earth. And the fuqah have combined this. This is the, what is called fiqh. And they've combined and they've written these rules in such a structured form that you would be amazed. And so the first thing that we look at is water, waste and pollution. And so in a hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa passed by the companion Sa'ad radiyallahu an. Hadith is in Muslim Ahmad. And he was making wudu. The companion, the sahabi was making wudu. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said, the meaning of the hadith is, what is this extravagance, O Sa'ad? What is this extravagance, O Sa'ad? And so the companion replied, can there be extravagance in wudu? Can there be israf in wudu? Wudu is a religiously required ritual. Without it, salah is not right. Can there be extravagance in that? So Rasulullah said, Naam, wa in kunta ala nahrin jarin. Even if you are on the banks of a flowing river. So it's not that this was a desert environment, water was scarce, or water was not available that much. So, but you, if you have a lot of water, if you come across a flowing river, you can use all the water you want. No. Even if you're on the banks of a flowing river, you are still not allowed to make israf you're still not allowed to waste the ni'mah because it's not yours. You are just a caretaker. This is the bounty that Allah Azza wa has given you. These are the ni'mah, these are the resources that Allah Azza wa has put at your disposal. And so you have to use them in the way that Allah wants you to use them. And so even on the banks of a flowing river, you're not allowed to make extravagance. And so we understand from this, wherever a person goes, you're not allowed to waste just because there's a lot of something. And so Islam guarantees for those people waters that are in the rivers, the seas, ponds, all of these things, those wells that have been given for the waqf of Allah Azza wa Jal, uh, for Allah Azza wa Jal, all these waters that are public property, this is fair access for every single person to use. Nobody can stop another person from using it. And neither can another person come and use it in a, such a way that he pollutes it or harms that body of water so that others cannot benefit from it. So neither you can stop somebody else from using it or neither, and neither can you use it in such a way that it would harm the usage of other brothers and other sisters and other humans. So look at the rights and duties, how they mesh. You have your right, 
to get the water that you need. At the same time, it's your duty not to pollute this water. It's your duty not to make this water dirty so that others continue to use it. Look at the fairness that is there. And so the Muslims over time, they develop these irrigation canals. They're known in Arabic as saqiyah, gravity-fed irrigation canals. And they took this to Andalus, Muslim Spain. And from there, when, they, when, the, uh, when the Spaniards, they came to the New World, North America and South America, they brought this technology with them that they had learned from the Muslims, gravity-fed irrigation canals that would have multiple uses. The same water would be, it would be shared equally with people. They would share the cleaning of this water. They would share the usage of this water. They got this concept from the Muslims and they brought it over here. And to this day, you find it in approximately five U.S. states. Among the most prominent is New Mexico. And these are known as asikas. Look at the similarity with the word saqiyah. Use, everybody shares the water. It's sustainable. Some, and they are assigned a specific day. This is the day when you open the channel and use the water for your field. Then you close it back up so your neighbor can use the water. And then you get together and you clean it when it gets dirty. Look at this concept that is borrowed from the Muslims and is present today. It's very vital to their, uh, to, to their fields. This is how they water their fields in many, many parts of New Mexico and other U.S. states. This is Muslim technology because it derives from the principle of fair and equal access to all for all the waters. So look at the blessings of Islam that are found here, even by those who are not Muslims, who don't know about it, but these are the blessings that they derive from fair access for all. In addition to that, there's a book called Al-Majalla, which is a code of commercial law that was derived in the time of the Ottoman Empire. And when you read this book and its commentaries, you will find that they talk about every single thing, proper waste management, pollution prevention, sustainable development, the scholars, they talk about how the, this is a book of fiqh, jurisprudence, cleaning the rivers. For example, these are public rivers. If it becomes polluted, becomes dirty, then the government should step in and clean it. Use the public treasury funds to clean this water. But what if there's no money in the public treasury? There's a solution for that. The people should step up and clean it. The people don't want to clean. Maybe they're lazy. The government needs to force them to clean it. So every able-bodied person will clean the water so there's equal access for all. And those people who are not able-bodied but have the money, have the, monetary, uh, the money funds, monetary funds, that they'd give a proper share of money so that this water can be cleaned and used by all. You have examples of sewer repair, that if a sewer breaks and goes into another person's home, then you clean this up so there's, there's no harm caused to other people. Pollution is not going. There's, there's, they have listed rules about preventing co contamination of water supply, that these sewers that are running should not end up in any wells or any public waters where it's making it um, polluted. Rules about garbage disposal, that you don't pile this garbage at your neighbor's wall such that it weakens the foundation of their wall. Rules about air, noise, and odor pollution that would be counted today as zoning laws. These are also defined in Islamic fiqh, zoning laws. For example, a person has a home, next to him a person erects a factory or some kind of business, and he's making a lot of noise so that the neighbor cannot live. That's not allowed, that needs to be removed. If there's a slaughterhouse next to the masjid, and from the smell of the slaughterhouse making it difficult for the people to come and pray, that slaughterhouse needs to be removed. So you have all these examples that the fuqaha, that the Jews have written, and you look at it, a sustainable life for all, that a person can live, at the same time you can go along with the lives, that necessary aspects of dunya that you need to go, but these are separated. Zoning laws also have been defined in fiqh. So advanced that a person looks at how advanced the Muslims were in their thinking, in living in harmony with nature, with one another, so that nobody is disturbed. And like I said, you take examples of this and you apply it to your own life. For example, we come out from Taraweeh and Ramadan starts, especially where a masjid is in a residential zone, and people tend to talk out loud and the car alarms go on and you have the neighbors being disturbed. 
That's that noise pollution that we're talking about, that they're being disturbed. And so what kind of da'wah are we making with that? These aspects, if you think about it, you apply these rules and you immediately will find a use in your own life. How can I, I apply this information in my own life? Not that this is something that was there in that time and it doesn't apply to me anymore. You have examples of sustainable forestry and land use. So Allah says in the Quran, وَالنَّجْمُ وَالشَّجَرُ Yazjudan In Surah Rahman, and the vines or the stars, because najm has two meanings. Those stalkless vegetation and the trees, they, they prostrate, they make sujood, meaning they comply with all that is required for the benefit of mankind. These resources that Allah has put for our sake, these are there, but look at what Allah has put with them. It comes in a hadith that a pilgrim, when he makes the talbiyah, labbaik Allahumma labbaik, there is no um, thing except on his right and on his left rocks, trees, and hills to the farthest corners of the world from here and there, except they also make talbiyah with him. When this person makes says labbaik Allahumma labbaik, rocks, trees, and hills, they also make labbaik. So think about this ability that Allah Azza wa has placed inside this creation. And when you think about that, then you learn to respect that this rock, this tree, this hill doesn't appear to you, but it's also making its ibadah. It's also making tasbih. That there's nothing that except that makes tasbih of Allah Azza wa except that you do not understand their method, their mode of make glorifying Allah Azza wa So when you understand that, you understand it's not just going and cutting down trees here and there, but using the resources that you need to do. In fact, it comes in one hadith in Abu Dawud that whoever cuts down a low tree, a low tree, um, Allah Azza wa will put his head into the fire. And Abu Dawud, um, the compiler of this hadith, was asked about this hadith. He said, this is a Mukhtasar hadith, the meaning of this is that these low trees that are present in the wilderness that are used by travelers, that are used by animals for shade, whoever cuts this down, there's no benefit in cutting it. It's in the wilderness out there. It serves a purpose there. It's there for the shade that it provides to travelers. It's there for the shade it provides to the animals. Whoever cuts this down wrongfully, without haq, then Allah Azza wa will punish him for that. So this, look at how important it is. And similarly, but if there's a need to cut it down, for example, a person, there was a tree that was in the way and was causing difficulties for people to pass through. And one person cut it down. And because of that, he entered into Jannah. So the question is purpose. Whereas there's a need, where there's a haq, where there's a right, you can utilize those resources. But to waste the resources, to waste the ni'mah and blessing that Allah Azza wa has given to you, then a person would be subject to questioning on the Day of Judgment and might be questioned to punishment. You have the concept of hima which is لا حما إلا لله ولرسوله أو كما قال صلى الله عليه وسلم there is no hima except for Allah and His Messenger what is hima? protected pastured lands in the time of Jahiliyyah before Islam you would have influential big people they would assign they would go and if they liked an area in the wilderness that they wanted just for their flock just for their animals they would bring their dog and they would make the dog bark and wherever's voice, wherever the voice would reach of this dog, this area would be theirs. Nobody else could come inside this area. When Islam came, Rasulullah invalidated this unjust concept. And he said, the only hima is for Allah and his Rasul. Meaning, the government has a right to have specific land preserved for the sake of all. And so Rasulullah had the camels of zakat. He had a protected pastured land where the camels of zakat would be able to pasture. Look at this concept in hadith, similar to when you have nature preserves, forest preserves, where the land is preserved for the benefit of all. This is in the time Rasulullah Land is preserved for the benefit of all. Because you have these animals that are given in zakat, they need a place to pasture. 
They need a place to eat grass. They need a place to grow. They need a place to move around. And that area Rasulullah had cordoned off that this is for the camels of zakat. That are given in zakat, these animals, because they're for the benefit of all, this area is preserved for them. So it protected pastured land. And similar concept you have now in nature preserves, forest preserves. Look at the sustainable land use that is there in our traditions. You also have a hadith where Rasulullah has informed us the meaning of the hadith. There is no Muslim that plants a tree or sows a seed and a bird eats from it or a person eats from it, human being eats from it or an animal eats from it except that that is a sadqa for that person. A person plants a tree and it grows, has a fruit, a squirrel comes, a bird comes, eats from that, that person gets the reward from that. And Mawlana Shafali Tanbi has written something very beautiful about this. When the person is planting his tree, he doesn't have any intention that he's going to feed this at, uh, bird or this squirrel. In fact, the intention is reversed. When this animal comes and tries to eat my berries, tries to eat my apples, I'm going to shoo him away. Or I'm going to get nets to protect that area. You have the reverse niyyah. But it's the mercy of Allah that you become an apparent cause of the creation of Allah Azza wa Jal benefiting and eating. Because of that you get the ajar. Even though the niyyah is not there. You have planted this tree. This is only for my family. Somebody comes, a squirrel comes and he picks this fruit. The, tree, the bird comes and he picks it. You still get the thawab. You still get the ajar. Because you become a sabab, a cause for this animal benefiting, for this bird benefiting and eating. Look at the thawab and the ajar that is there in planting trees. Look at the way Islam looks at this thing of how you are a caretaker of the earth. You have animals. Animal rights is an Islamic concept. Rasulullah sallallahu was with the Sahaba and he left them for a little while, went someplace. In the meantime, the Sahaba, the companion, they saw what is called a red-headed sparrow. And it had two young ones, two baby birds with it. So the Sahaba took the two baby birds. And the bird is going round and round, flapping its wings in grief. Rasulullah came back and he saw, and he said, who has hurt the feelings of this bird by taking its young one? Return, return the young ones back to her. Look at, you know, this is, We have not sent you as a mercy for the worlds. Look at the beauty of this. And this is how Rasulullah interacting with wild animals. And domesticated animals, same thing. Rasulullah one time entered a garden from amongst the Ansars, the residents of Medina. And so he saw a camel. When the camel saw Rasulullah, the camel started crying. Rasulullah approached that camel and he stroked its back and the camel stopped crying. And Rasulullah asked, who is the owner of this camel? Who is the owner of this camel? And a young boy from amongst the Ansar, from amongst the residents of Medina, inhabitants of Medina came, I am O Rasulullah, I am the owner of this camel. So Rasulullah said in the meaning of this, that don't you fear Allah Azza wa Jal regarding this animal that has been placed in your possession. It is complaining to me that you don't feed it and you overburden it, causing it fatigue. It's complaining to Rasulullah Sallallahu that you don't feed it and you overburden it, causing fatigue. So fear Allah Azza wa Jal regarding this animal. Fear Allah Azza wa Jal regarding this animal. Look at how Rasulullah interacted both with wild and domestic animals. Look at the rights that Islam has granted to animals. You have waqf, waqf, properties that were given for the sake of animals. You had waqf in Dimashq, in Damascus, in Sham, where you had an area of pastures that was there in the city itself. Animals that would become old, horses that would become old, and the people, the owners can no longer spend on them. Perhaps they use them for transporting. These people cannot now feed this animal because this animal is no longer earning. They can come, they could come and leave this horse in this pasture. This is specifically there for the animals to be left. 
and he's going to eat for the rest of his life and he doesn't have to work. Retirement for horses. Happy horses. You also have chubby cats. You had homes specifically for cats where food would be served to them daily. Food would be served to them. All they had to do was sit, eat, and play. Nothing else. Homes specifically for cats. Look at this. We were at a point where we could take care of our animals. Now we cannot even take care of our brothers and sisters. There was a point where we could take care of our animals. Now we cannot even take care of our brothers and sisters. May Allah change the situation of our brothers and sisters, everyone. May Allah put into heart to help everyone. And so, on the reverse side, in Europe, you had animal trials. Up until the 1700s, you would have animals being brought into court. Animals would be taken to court and they would be punished if found guilty. So this is the Islamic concept and you have the reverse of that. Amongst the most famous is a real situation that took place in Basel, Switzerland, 1474. You had a hen that looked like a rooster. It laid an egg. They said, how can a rooster lay an egg? This must be some kind of witch. It's a sorcerer. Take it to court. They took the, they took the hen, which looked like a rooster, to court. Can you imagine a judge is sitting there and a rooster is brought? And they appointed a defender for this rooster. This, look at the thinking. And so I want to make, I'm, the reason why I'm telling this story is to make it clear that, that animal welfare, animal rights is an Islamic concept. Up until the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, this was the thinking that was there. And so they bought this, and even the defender said, I cannot defend. How can a rooster lay an egg? They didn't think, they didn't go into him that this is a hen. And this is documented. And they took the egg, they took the hen, and they said, this is a witch. Burn it alive at the stake. They burnt it alive at the stake. That was the concept that was there at that time. So animal rights is an Islamic concept. And you have the Sahaba, embodying the spirit of Rasulullah the mercy for the world. You have Adi ibn Hatim, who used to take bread and used to crush it into fine powder. And he used to feed it to the ants. And he used to say, these are neighbors. These are neighbors. And they have rights over us, just like neighbors have rights over us. So imagine a Sahabi. Where did he get this information from? Where did he learn this from? In the school of Rasulullah mercy to the worlds. You have Abu Darda radiallahu anhu, he's on his deathbed. Imagine a person on his deathbed, how many things are going through his mind? You have your wife, you have your children, you have family, you have prop so many things to go about. But Abu Darda radiallahu anhu finds the time to address his camel. He says that, oh camel, oh my camel, do not quarrel before me, do not argue about me to, to, to your Lord, because I never overburdened you. Every time I took you, I used you and put you in service. I took care never to put too much weight on you. Look at the, how much concern the Sahaba had. Where did they get this from? They learned it in the school of Rasulullah You have Anas ibn Malik radiallahu He entered the home of a, um, uh, one of the governors and he saw that some animals had been tied up. An animal had been tied and people were shooting at it. Target practice. And he said, Rasulullah has forbidden this to tie up an animal and use it for target practice like that. Forbidding this, you had the Sahaba standing up for the rights of animals, even to rulers. You had Ibn Umar radiallahu an, the son of Umar radiallahu an, passing by and some people had tied up a chicken and were shooting at it. Again, same. It's called sabrul baha'im. It's forbidden. It's torture. It's a hadab. And so he passed by and he saw that this chicken has been tied up and they're shooting at it. And he said, who did this? They scattered away. And he said, Rasulullah sallallahu listen to this, has cursed the one that does this. Respected brothers and elders, the curse of Rasulullah is no small thing. For Rasulullah to curse, think of how big of a thing it is. To have that much concern for animals. Look at the Sahaba. You have Sahaba addressing, taking care of the ants. Sahaba 
addressing their animals, meaning that we did never overburden you. Don't argue um, regarding us before your Rabb. You have the Sahaba standing up to rulers and people who are using, who are uh, abusing animals. Look at a cow's awareness. In a hadith, Rasulullah mentioned that there was a man that was driving a cow, using a cow, and all of a sudden he sat on it and started riding the cow. Now is cow for riding? And when he riding, started riding the cow, he hid it. The cow said to this man, that inna lam We haven't been created for this. We have been created for plowing. So look, even the animal knows for what it has been created. Just because Allah Azzawajal has put you in a position over these animals does not mean you can use them any way you want. And look at this cow's awareness. It knows for what it was created. Does man know for what purpose he was created? Or is it just eating and drinking and no ibad? Does man know? This cow knows for what he was created. Does a man know for what purpose he was created? For what reason Allah Azzawajal created him? Were you created for this? Ibrahim ibn Adham from amongst the sage, from amongst the pious men. He was from amongst the sons of kings. He would go out hunting. And he was out hunting one day and he heard a noise saying, Ali hadha khuliqt. Were you created for this purpose? Hunting without any purpose? There's nothing. Ambi hadha umirt. Were you ordered to do this? No, you were not created for this. You were not ordered to do this. Because if you are hunting for food, if you are hunting for some beneficial thing, like the hide of an animal, if you are hunting to protect yourself from the harm of an animal that is harmed, there is another thing. You have a purpose. But just to go out and hunt for no purpose and to waste the resources of Allah, that Allah has put on this earth, that is not permissible. That is why Fuqa said that it's not permissible to go out and hunt for no purpose at all. You go out to take resources. If you need food, if you need the hide, if you need the bones, that is a different situation. But to just go out and kill animals like that is not allowed. It's not allowed. And look at how Fuqaha talked about this. And so on the day of judgment, you will have a sparrow that will complain to Allah Azza wa Jal that so and so killed me without any purpose, without any benefit. The sparrow will complain against the person that killed it, that this person killed me without any purpose. If a purpose is there, if food is there, if other purpose is there, then it's permissible. But if it's without any purpose, you're just killing it without any purpose at all, without any need, without any use of its food, of the food that you're going to use, or if there's any other purpose to it, then you just killed it without any purpose. You wasted the resources that Allah put at your disposal. And so you have the famous story that we have all have heard about a man that entered into Jannah because he quenched the thirst of a dog. He was forgiven by Allah because he quenched the thirst of a dog. And you have a woman that was sentenced to hellfire because she imprisoned a cat. She would not feed it and she would not only go outside to eat by itself, to feed itself. Look at the difference. So heaven and hell, forgiveness and punishment based on the treatment of an animal. This how Islam emphasizes it, taking proper care of pets. Taking, is a very important responsibility that Allah Azza wa Jalla has placed upon us. Those that were in this panel before heard about Mawla Shafali Tanwi and the very important incident about the, uh, about the chickens. And so in conclusion, one final thing, that is not only respected brothers and elders, mothers and sisters, our physical deeds, taking care of animals, not taking care of these affect, definitely affect, and we have been ordered to be very, very careful in regards to the rights that Allah Azza wa Jal placed with regarding to land use, water use, avoiding waste, stopping pollution, taking care of animals. But also, there is another very, very important aspect that I want you to focus on. And that is that it comes in a hadith. A janazah passed by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, hadith is in Bukhari. And Rasulullah said, 
mustarihun wa mustarahun min. That the janazah is of two types. Either it is relieved or others are relieved of that person. The Sahaba asked, who is the one that is relieved and who is the one from whom others are relieved? So you have one type of servant, of a believing servant, who worships Allah Azza wa Jal. When he dies, he's relieved from the frustration and difficulties of this world and he's released to the mercy of Allah Azza wa Jal. As for the person who is a sinner, a transgressor, disbeliever, from him, the people who are, uh, uh, from him, the people who are um, the towns, the people, the trees, and the animals, they're relieved. They're relieved from him. So how are these, how are towns and people and trees and animals relieved of this person, this transgressing person? Very important point. Because our deeds also have an effect on them. When a transgressor, when he dies, then that person, that reason for withholding rain is gone. That's why they're relieved. Because Allah Azza wa holds back rain. Allah Azza wa holds back goodness because of the transgression, because of the sins and the zulum, the oppression that is committed by us. So look at this beautiful concept in Islam. It's not only the impact that you have in terms of wasting water, not wasting water. It's also your deeds that have an effect on the lives of these animals, these trees, nature. That how you do, what good you do or what bad you do, that has a direct, a real and tangible effect on the life of these animals, on the life of this tree, on, on nature's on nature, on trees, that has an effect. If you do bad, if you do wrong, then that goodness that is held back is because of you. And if you do good, for example, in a hadith, the, if a person, a person who teaches good to people, who teaches deen to people, that person, for him, who prays, the, even the, uh, the, all the animals on the earth, the malaika, they pray for him. The animals that are on the earth pray for him. Even the ants that are in the holes, even the fish that are in the sea, pray for the one who teaches people to do good. So you have the pleasure of animals, you have the pleasure of animals based on person teaching good, and then you have animals and nature suffering based on a person being wrong. So the conclusion is that it's not only our actions, physical actions, but also our deeds, the good or bad deeds that we do that have a real tangible effect on what kind of, how the animals live, whether they suffer or whether they make dua for us. This has a very important benefit too. So take that into account because Islam looks, is telling you both things. It's not only the fact that you avoid wastage, you treat animals kindly, that has an effect. And also your deeds have an effect. So look at the reason for what purpose you were created. You were created for ibadah. You were created for the worship of Allah Azza wa Jal. You were created for being a caretaker of this earth. So treat it in the manner that Rasulullah somehow is appreciate every single bounty of Allah Azza wa Jal that he has placed before you. Don't waste anything. May Allah Azza wa Jal give us all tawfiq. Wa astaghfirullah min kawlim bil amalim.